Wouldn't you love it if uh, you could have as clear a direction as the people of Israel had with a cloud of, you know, a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. This is where you should work. There's a pillar of fire right over it. This is where you ought to buy. This neighborhood right here, there's a big pillar of cloud right there. Just do that. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, it seems from our reading numbers that God is interested in giving us, his children, direction for living. And not just from that story, from many stories in the Bible, we, we discover that God cares about how we live, where we live, and what we're doing. He isn't interested in us just wandering around, lost in the wilderness of, of life's difficult decisions, difficult circumstances. He doesn't want us just being blindly stumbling around, hoping that we survive. For Israel, as they made their way through the desert, God lovingly guided them, and uh, he did so by this pillar of fire and at night and the pillar of cloud by day. And it was through that they felt his comfort. They felt his assurance. They knew that they had a God who loved them. He was there for them, constantly guiding and directing them. Every time they went to bed, every time they woke up, they were reminded that they had a God, a good God who cares. I chose to have this passage in Numbers 9 read this morning because it fits so nicely with our text today in Psalm 119. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me, Psalm 119, and turn to verse 105. We're going to enter into a new stanza this morning in this psalm. As you know, there are 22 stanzas that make up this psalm, and each of these stanzas gives an argument uh, or a defense for the value and the importance of the Word of God in our daily lives. And, of course, this psalm, the, the, this stanza, the noon stanza, verses 105 through 112, is no different. It is here defending, trying to convince us that God's Word actually is very valuable for each of us on a daily basis. So the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, demonstrated to the people of Israel God's interest in their protection, God's interest in their, in their guidance, the people of Israel in Moses' day didn't have the complete Word of God, which we possess. They didn't have the 66 books. They didn't have the first five books. It wasn't until the end of their wilderness wanderings that they received Genesis through Deuteronomy from the pen of Moses. At the time of this story in, Deuteronomy, in, in uh, Numbers 9, they had no written Word of God. This is the way God guided His people at that time through overt actions on his part. We, on the other hand, have 66 books that guide us, direct us faithfully and consistently through life. The Word of God is our pillar of fire, our pillar of, of cloud. It protects us, it guides us, it comforts us. And that's the message of this stanza, verses 105 through 112. In fact, I would say that's the message of the entire chapter of Psalm 119. This is a wonderful chapter and particularly wonderful stanza. Let me read it for you. This is verses 105 through 112 of Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. 
I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. <clears throat> Today, I want to speak to you from this stanza, which shows how the Word of God shines light on the paths that each of us walk. And by the way, our paths aren't all that different from each other. But we all have paths to walk on, and this particular stanza shows us how the Word of God shines light on those dark trails that we find ourselves on. And many of those paths are, in, in fact, dark, difficult, and hard to see on without light, which the Word of God provides. We often find ourselves in precarious places, different times of our life, stumbling, getting lost, looking for help, feeling insecure. This stanza identifies particular areas of our lives which we need clear direction from God, and that direction comes in His Word. So let me begin by first uh, convincing you from this text that the Bible is, in fact, clear. It's not obscure, it's not hard to understand, it's clear. Theologians use the term per perpiscuity, that is P-E-R-S-P-I-C-U-I-T-Y, perpiscuity. And of course this word means to be understandable, to be clear, to be something that we can grasp. Those of us who are believers and who faithfully study it, see the Word of God for what it is and what it means. The, the thing that, that we understand from this theological term, perpiscuity, is that it doesn't require us to have an ordained pastor or a trained theologian or some kind of church official to help explain the Word of God to us. That's not required. Additionally, uh, we don't really need any body of individuals telling us what the Bible says or what it means. Of course, this does not mean that all parts of the Bible are equally clear and understandable. It, they are, in fact, passages in the Scriptures that are difficult to understand. This idea of perspicuity also does not mean that there is no value in an educated pastor or seeking to acquire more theological or doctrinal knowledge ourselves. These are good things. The confessions, the creeds, the catechism, systematic theologies, biblical theologies that we possess come from the pens of educated men. And it would be unwise for us to ignore these things. Although the Bible is clear and understandable in its teachings, it's unfortunate when some think that it is licensed for an undisciplined and private opinion or interpretation. You hear people say, I think the Bible means, or to me the Bible means, or this verse means. It really doesn't matter what the Bible means to me. What matters is what the Bible means. Wouldn't you rather know what it means than what it, it means to this person or that person? Well, the Bible is clear and we can actually discover its meaning. All opinions about the Bible are not equal. There are those who have given their lives to careful study and examination of the Scriptures. And the term perpiscuity does not mean that we can take personal freedoms in our study of the Word of God. Most of the cults begin with faulty interpretation of the Bible, right? Perpiscuity actually means that the Bible 
and its meaning will open up to anyone who will carefully examine the Word of God as he intends. You might ask then, why are there so many disagreements on doctrines and theologies in the church? Ever thought that question? If the Bible is so clear, then why are there so many divergent opinions about it? This is particularly challenging for us Protestants. You know, if you're in the Catholic Church, the Bible means what the Pope says it means. Not here, not in Protestant churches, which is why we have so much disagreement in Protestant circles over the Scriptures. But one reason that we have doctrinal disagreements is that we remain sinners. Those who interpret scriptures are just as sinful as the next guy in God's eyes. And this tendency to sin leads to a tendency to misunderstand what the Bible is actually saying. And it's usually because I want to interpret scripture in a way that protects my sinful tendencies, right? Protects my sinful opinions. If I can get the Bible to defend me, then I can sleep at night. I can feel better about myself and think that I'm better than you. And this is a tendency for anyone who goes about trying to interpret the scriptures. Um, so we need to think clearly about this as we proceed into the word, trying to understand what it says. How do we do this? Well, a good place to start when you're going to interpret the Bible is prayer. Asking the author of the scriptures to speak to you, to illuminate for you the meaning of the text. If indeed this book is written by a divine author, the Holy Spirit, inspiring humans to write these words, then the Holy Spirit ought to know the meaning of these words. So when we pray and ask for him to give us enlightenment or understanding, that's the best place to start when you're interpreting the scriptures. And that's where we start, by the way, every Sunday. If you remember, uh, Pastor Rick was just up here and he prayed that God would illuminate this word to our hearts so that we would understand what's being said in this text that I read for you earlier. Prayer is a wonderful place and the only place to begin interpretation. We also must use the faithful works of previous Christians. People who have gone before us, people who have thought deeply about this text themselves, people who have written commentaries on what this text means. There is a plethora of available material to help you understand what every text of Scripture actually means. We don't need to think up for ourselves what is it being said here. In fact, if you come to an interpretation that you can't find it anywhere else, I'll guarantee you one thing it's wrong, <laughs> right? All interpretation has already been discovered of the text. It's all been written down. We simply need to find it. Buy good commentaries. Own good commentaries. And by the way, there's many good commentaries that are for free online these days. So we shouldn't hesitate to use good commentaries. They're written to help students of the word. I had a young man come into my study once. This was about 10 years ago announcing to me that he no longer needed churches or pastors or commentaries to tell him what the Word of God meant. He came across this idea of perspicuity, and he thought he was independent of all other teachers, and he was just fine with him and the Holy Spirit. That never leads to a good place. We need prayer. We need the Word of other people who have gone before us, as well as the Holy Spirit. Next, there this, there's this thing called hermeneutics. I know I'm throwing theological words at you, 
um, this morning, perpiscuity, now hermeneutics. But hermeneutics is simply the science of biblical interpretation. The science of biblical interpretation, there's actually a science to it, method, rules that have to be maintained if you're going to come to the right conclusion. There's the necessity of looking at the text historically. What did this text mean to the original recipients? Then there's the grammatical aspect of this study of scriptures. What do the words and sentences actually mean from the original language? And then there's the literal idea of biblical interpretation. Unless there is a compelling reason to not translate this literally, we ought to translate it literally. So when we come across uh, words that might confuse us about the identity of God, like uh, uh, hiding under the wings of God, we would know that that's not a literal description of God. We know he doesn't have wings. He's not a chicken. It's an obvious indication that this is not literal. This, this happens occasionally in Scripture. But for the most part, if, when we're reading Scripture, we ought to look at it literally. And then what they say is contextually. What does the context say? Is the context talking about what you think it is? You look at the immediate verse, the immediate chapter, the book, and then where it comes into view in all of Scripture. Faulty interpretation usually comes from ignoring these rules. So depending on your hermeneutic, that is the way you approach the Scriptures scientifically under the rules, and your presuppositions, maybe that you learn from growing up in a certain church or environment, you may try to do a thorough study of the Bible and still end up in a different place than the person who uses a different hermeneutic. Then what? Well, interestingly, there is far more agreement between genuine believers than there is disagreement. There is very little disagreement between genuine believers on issues that matter. The only things that we might disagree with with other churches are secondary issues, which is why they gather in different buildings. They're secondary issues, though. We still have fellowship with Pentecostals and Nazarenes and Baptists. We still have fellowship with all these people because they believe the same things about the person and work of Jesus Christ that we do. They would just apply the secondary issues differently. That might make us a little bit uncomfortable. So we meet in different buildings to keep the unity of the Spirit as we're commanded to. Although there are important doctrinal disagreements between Christians, there are far more agreements, especially on these core issues I've described. For example, all Christians believe in the triune God, that there are three equal members of the Godhead. If you don't believe that, you're probably not a Christian. Next, we believe that there are two natures of Jesus Christ. We believe he's fully God and fully man. If you don't believe that, you're probably not a Christian. We also believe that all mankind are sinful. We all have the same problem. We're all in the same boat. We all need the same Savior. We also believe in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for that sin. That's why Jesus came. John 12 says that. This is why I came. <laughs> So we believe in the sacrificial death of Jesus. We also believe in the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Why did you come to faith? Is it because you're so smart? No, it's because the Holy Spirit moved you to faith. He granted you faith. Christians believe these things. 
We believe in the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. We believe in the final judgment. The core issues of the faith we all agree on. It's these secondary issues that cause us trouble in churches. So there's far more commonality between Christians than not. We also have these things called creeds and confessions that most, if not all, Christians embrace. There's things like the Apostles' Creed. If you disagree with the Apostles' Creed, that would probably set you outside the boundaries of Christianity or the Nicene Creed, for example. So the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear to us who will faithfully, diligently examine it, study it. Now let's look at the second point. The Bible is clarifying. By the way, the Bible is clear comes into focus in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Now let's get into the details of this as we think about how the Bible is clarifying. Not just clear, it's clarifying. It gives light to our paths specifically. This stanza lists seven things that the Bible clarifies for us. Seven important things that the Bible clarifies for each and every Christian. The first is found in verse 105. It clarifies our direction in life. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. We are all on a path. The word of God gives light to that path. It shows us where we ought to be walking, things we ought to be careful of. It gives light to our path. It's not about where we live, but how we live. Do you want to know how God wants you to live? Well, this knowledge comes from understanding God's word. God's word gives light to the path that he has put you on. God's word gives you understanding of how you ought to walk that path that you're on. It gives direction, like the pillar of fire. If it moves over here, you follow it. If the word of God says this, then you do that if you're a Christian. If you're unclear how to deal with certain situation you're in, the Word of God will help. It gives clarifying principles. You read the Word and you discover, oh, this is what I ought to be doing. This happens all the time in Christian life. It gives clarifying principles to the walks of life. The the light of God's Word shines its light on dark and indistinguishable paths that we're on to keep us out of danger. The Bible isn't designed to tell you which job to take or which person you should marry or where you should live. Rather, the Bible gives principles for living, priorities to live by. This is what the Bible is about. Next, we see in verse 106 that it clarifies our behavior. Look at verse 106. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. It clarifies our behavior. It gives clear direction for godly conduct, how to honor God, how to love others, how to spread the gospel. You know, you may think, well, don't people already know what's right and wrong? I would say generally they do. Most people believe what's right and what's wrong. No matter what culture you find yourself in, everybody thinks murder is wrong, lying is wrong, stealing is wrong. How did that happen? It's because God has built within each of us a conscience. We all understand the basics of right and wrong. But what about when it isn't so black and white? What about when it's gray? Does the Bible address gray areas? Yes. In fact, it clarifies gray areas so they become black and white. You remember the story of the five missionaries in Ecuador, South America, who died in 1956? 
taking the gospel to the Alka Indians. Put yourself in Nate Saint's shoes. He was in the plane when his party, his party of five, were attacked by these Indians. He had a gun. He didn't use it. Why not? Do you think he would have used that gun if he would have been in his home with his daughter and one of those same Indians would have broken into his house? The Word of God gives clarity to gray areas. How to think about these kind of things. The Word of God reveals this to us. The more we know the Word of God, the less gray there is in our thinking. This is where the study of God's Word is so critical. The study of, the God, of God's Word starts to eliminate the gray. In verse 107, we see the next area of clarification. Verse 107 talks about our suffering. I am severely afflicted, he said. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Why do you suffer? I mean, you're a good person. Why do you suffer? Why does your neighbor suffer? They haven't done anything wrong. Why does anybody suffer? You might ask. We run into these kind of questions a lot. And it's not an easy question. God's word teaches us that suffering is common. Some suffering is for corrective purposes. Some for strengthening purposes. Others for the glory of God. Sometimes it's not discernible. This is what we learn from God's word about suffering. The psalmist here asks for life to survive the suffering. Because when you suffer, what happens? You despair of life sometimes, don't you? You get discouraged. You want to quit or give up. You wish it would end. That's what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying, give me life to survive the suffering. He's not trying to answer the philosophical questions associated with suffering that troubles the minds of all humans. Why innocent people suffer is a difficult question. That's not what's in view here. He is asking, simply asking, God, help me right now. I'm suffering. He acknowledges that God's help for suffering is found on the pages of Scripture. If you're suffering right now, or if you have suffered, don't you, Christian, run to the Word of God? We go there often when we're feeling down and out and suffering at one degree or another. We find that it's the source of hope, encouragement. When you're suffering, sometimes you might get an email or a text from a friend, and all it is is a Bible verse. Why? Because the Word of God helps us in those things. It gives us life. It, it vivifies us and helps us press on. That's what he's saying. It clarifies our suffering. And verse 108 gives us the next. Look at this. How does the Word of God clarify our worship? Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. The Word of God clarifies our worship. Think about that. In all this worship nonsense that the church is experiencing currently, do you think the Word of God speaks to corporate worship? Why do we worship the way we do at Sun Valley Church? Do you think we do this in hopes that we can keep your attention enough, entertain you enough so you'll come back next week? You think that's our motive? Do you think that's why we plan this the way we do? No. We plan our church specifically 
as the Word of God instructs us to plan our worship service. There are guidelines in the Word of God to how people, God's people, need to approach Him. It isn't a free-for-all, as you might think at some churches. It's not a free-for-all. In Scripture, it's very clear how we ought to study, how we ought to praise God, how we ought to interact with God in His presence as a people. This verse tells us that the Word of God, I mean, that corporate worship is made up of two things, praise and the Word. You see that? Praise in the first line of verse 108 and the teaching of God's Word in the second line. Those two things must be a part of any worship service. If it is a God-honoring worship service, we don't have the option of not praising Him together. We neither have the option of not teaching you of God's Word those two things are required. And by the way, those two areas are even more well-defined the further you dig into Scripture. How should we teach God's Word? How should we praise God? We don't have the freedom to chase chickens around in this room on Sunday morning. It's not allowable in Scripture. There are certain things we can do and certain things we cannot do. The Bible lays this out. Our goal in prayer here is that when we study the God's Word, we will learn to love Him more, learn to serve Him more, learn to love and serve one another more. That's the point of teaching. Teaching is a critical aspect of any worship service that's actually a worship service. I'm not up here to entertain you or to give you ideas about how to think politically. I'm here to explain to you what God is saying in the text before us. That's the that's the objective of every pastor, at least the biblical objective. Our goal at Sun Valley Church is to real, reveal God to you from the scriptures, to teach you to love him, worship him, serve him, and tell others about him. Our songs that we sing, why do we choose the songs we sing? Why don't we have more exciting songs? Well, because we're limited to the songs that actually have biblical lyrics. Theologically sound lyrics. We're not free to sing whatever is on Caleb. It's, we can't do that. Our scriptures require us to present our praise to God that reflects Him in His Word. It's very clear. The next we see in verse 109, what does God's Word clarify? Dangers. Look at verse, verse 109. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. If you were to say, I'm taking my life into my hands, what would you be saying? I'm in a dangerous situation. I took my life into my hands when I went skydiving, right? That's, that's how you might describe skydiving. That's what he's saying here. I, I I hold my life in my hands continually. I'm always in danger. So how does the word of God clarify danger? You know, you and I are in constant danger too. We just don't know it because most of the danger we face is a spiritual danger. We don't have our neighbors usually chasing us around trying to kill us, setting snares for us. That usually isn't our experience but we have an enemy far greater than our neighbors who is very much in favor of having us snared. We have an enemy that, that actually 
has been around a long time, who, who ambushed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, continuing to try to do the same thing to you and me. How do we deal with that? By the way, this leads into the next verse also. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. We have enemies. We have dangers. These two things are constantly before the Christian. Oh, sure, we, have, we may have some resistance to our testimony. We may have some difficulty at work because we claim to know Jesus or follow Christ. And we have antagonists that don't like Religious people don't like God, and so they make it difficult for you at work. I understand that. We have dangers and enemies all around us. What does the Bible have to say about that? What do we do about the enemy? It even gets down to the detail. What do we do about physical enemies, our neighbors that are mistreating us? How do you work through that? The Bible actually tells us how to deal with danger, how to deal with enemies. We don't need to fear. We have, we have a God that is guiding us wherever we go. He's protecting us wherever we are. And by the way, his protection doesn't mean you'll never get sick. His protection doesn't mean you'll never die. He simply has all these things planned out for his glory and your good. This is what the Bible tells us, how we ought to think through these different dangers that we face. What do we see next? We see that we have a heritage also that is clarified, verse 111. A heritage. Look at this. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. For they are the joy of my heart. God's word is my heritage, the psalmist is saying. God's word is the joy of my heart. God's word is his heritage. He didn't say that earthly riches was his heritage. He didn't say that even heavenly reward was what he's looking forward to. He didn't say that was his heritage. He says that God's word is his joy. God's word is what he longs for. And he views that as his most important possession. It clarifies the value of God's word itself. So much so that he values it more than any earthly heritage. Think about that. A heritage, of course, can be something that's handed down from parents or forefathers. Like we have a wonderful heritage in the United States of America, but we also have this idea of heritage as an inheritance, as something that's going to come to us from our parents' estate. These things are both valuable to us. To the author, God's word was his most valuable heritage. Did Israel have an amazing heritage? Oh my goodness. It's all over the Old Testament. They had a wonderful heritage from God. I don't know what the status was or the wealth was of the author's parents here, but inheritance was a big deal to them also. And yet, the most important heritage of this author was God's Word. It was what brought him most joy. 
many people spend a lot of time thinking about what they're going to do once they inherit their parents' estate. Then life will really begin, right, is how many people think. Planning, preparing, all these different schemes that when this inheritance finally happens. Not this guy, not the author of this psalm. God's word was the most valuable thing. And I want to give you three reasons why I think this author may have thought that the heritage of God's word was so valuable. Firstly, um, the word of God is the most valuable and long-lasting thing on this earth. Think about this. Jesus said that everything would pass away except what? The word of God. That's what Jesus said. So we know because you and I will be on the other side of life also, right? Physical life ends and then there's the next life. We will be there either with God or not. But you know what else will be there? God and his word. So that puts the value of humanity and the value of God's word at the top of all value scales. God's word and God's people are more valuable than anything, more valuable than possessions, more valuable than reputations. God's word and God's people. This is why he said, your word is my heritage forever. Secondly, God's word flows from God himself. Right? Why is God's word so valuable? Because the author is fairly valuable. It's actually an extension of God. So when the psalmist claimed God's word as his heritage, he was claiming God as his heritage. These two are inseparable. In verse 57, the same author said, God is my portion. Thirdly, the reason that God's word is so valuable, so much so that it is his heritage, is that in Psalm 119, we've seen that the word of God is the joy and longing of his heart. There is nothing that brings more joy to this author than God's word. And of course, I'm describing these things so that you'll be convinced of the same thing. Why was God's word so valuable to him? Why was it the longing of his heart? It was because God's word satisfied him, motivated him, guided him, helps him. This is why this stanza exists. The word of God guides us. It's clear. It's clarifying. It's like a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke through life. Pillar of cloud, rather. This is the motivation for why I decided to teach you Psalm 119. I wanted to convince you of the value of God's word in hopes that you would pick it up and read it. For yourself. This is the motivation behind every missionary endeavor. Taking the most precious thing that we possess, the Word of God, and taking it to those who don't have it. That's why we have missionaries. That's why you go to your neighbors and talk to them about Jesus. So we have these seven areas found in verses 105 through 111 that the word of God clarifies. I want to end with my point from the verse 112. 
I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I've simply titled this as the Bible is compelling. It motivates this, this author to obey it, to follow it, to use it daily. I incline my heart to perform your word, to do what it says. It is that guide. If it moves left, I move left. If it moves right, I move right. This is what happened in the wilderness. When that cloud of fire moved, they moved. Back and forth they went. Wherever the word of God directs is what Christians do. See, the Bible is not only clear and clarifying, it compels action. How does the word of God compel action? Well, think about it this way with me. If you knew that an investment, a financial investment, was a slam dunk, would it compel your action? If you knew that a certain company's stock is going to skyrocket, you would probably buy it. If you knew that a certain investment was 100% sure of massive profit, you would round up as much money as you could. You would sell all those precious things in storage that you never see so that you'd have more money to buy that stock. Right? You would, do, you would, you would go sell everything you had to buy that piece of property, Jesus said, because you knew there was a pearl in it. This is what the author is saying about the Word of God. If you knew there was a slam dunk investment, you would not be stopped until you had some of that stock. He's saying that's, the, that's what's going on with the Word of God. The Word of God is so powerful, so effective, so valuable, so important. We have to get to it. We have to have it. It compels his action. He can make sure he's in it every day. He's thinking about it. He's praying over it night and day. At night, it's a column of fire. and day, it's a cloud of protection from the heat of the sun. It guides through all of life's difficulties. The word of God is what we're talking about. If the word of God is as valuable as the psalmist has described in this entire chapter... And even in this short stanza, if it guides and directs his claims, it would be foolish to not go all in on the book. He wasn't content just to leave this understanding up here in his brain between his ears saying, yeah, sure, I know what the Bible's about. I, I've got the 66 titles of the books memorized. I I know that Jesus came to earth. I know that the Ten Commandments were written. I know that Paul was an apostle. But if it ends there with the head knowledge and never makes its way to your heart, you haven't gone all in. He wants it to be moved to his heart. He wants it to uh, change his affections. He knew that it would pay off. And so the psalmist here was all in. The Holy Spirit here this morning is motivating you to be all in with the Word of God. Are you? Is the question. Is this, in fact, as valuable as the psalmist claims? If it is, does your life reflect that reality? This is a good question for churches. Is this book 
as important as the psalmist claims? It's a good question for families. Is this book as important as the psalmist claims? What's your answer to that question? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are the author of the text before us. You inspired the psalmist to write the words that we have read and studied this morning. You have inspired all the biblical authors to write your words, your thoughts on pages that we as human beings can read and understand. And yet we um, many times ignore or dismiss the words that are written for our benefit. I ask for your forgiveness for that, for us as a body of, at Sun Valley, for us as individuals who attend Sun Valley. I ask that in your mercy, God, you would grant us a hunger and thirst for your word that will never be satisfied, but that draws us daily into the text, that we would saturate our minds and hearts with your word, that we would look for guidance, that we would follow its guidance faithfully and carefully as the people of Israel did in Numbers 9. Help this to be evidenced in our life by good conduct, by right worship, by no fear of danger or enemies. And Father, I just ask that, that you would be gracious to us in our sin and failing to do this, that you would grant us pardon, but that you wouldn't just leave us in a place of pardon, but that you would push us towards, motivate us towards obedience. God, I ask this for your people here at Sun Valley. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.